So how are you feeling about getting older then? I went on a, 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 what they call a senior minister's conference not so long ago. You could tell it was a senior minister's conference because uh, the afternoon stroll was, was more popular than the playing football. Some people just went for a nap after lunch. And uh, what, when it really came home to me that it was a senior minister's conference was when the guy I was sharing a room with, this extraordinary noise came from the bathroom where he was. And he said to me, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, that happens quite regularly since my operation. It was a senior minister's conference. You, you like that? I mean, I, I got together with some friends. We, we've known each other for years. And we suddenly thought for the last 10 minutes, all we've been discussing were our variety of ailments and operations and visits to the doctors, you know. Hey, did, did you do that? You get together with your friends yet and talk about how things are just a bit more painful than they used to be? How, how do you feel about getting older? We're all actually doing it at the same rate. So they tell me. Our bodies are in steady decay. Uh, with some moments of rapid acceleration downhill. Uh, All of us will have fewer brain cells tomorrow than we we have today. That's just a fact. Of course, we we live in a culture that despises aging. The pressure on us today is to to deeply regret the passing of our youth, isn't it? To try and cling to, to what we once were or wish we were with our cosmetics and surgery and diets and, and exercise. It's a culture, actually, that's in denial about death. It's almost surprised that death happens, as though it's something that no one else has ever experienced. What's more, of course, is we're an aging population. Uh, There's more and more of us who are older and older. We're the victims of the success of our health system and our, our standard of living. It's why the NHS is under such pressure. But, but aging isn't just a ex- statistic, is it? Aging is an experience. So day after day, we, we ache a bit more after a long walk. Uh, your toes just seem a little bit further away than they, they used to be. You, you have to hold that book a bit closer to read it or, or just try and get it in focus. Now, the Bible says we are in bondage to decay. And never has a truer word been spoken. We are in bondage to decay. And frankly, people who, who try and deny that, they, they just often look silly. But the thing is this, I think most of us live as though that wasn't true. As though this world really is all there is. Oh, we might not have the, uh, the nip and tuck, but, but we emotionally function as though the seen world is the beginning and end of our existence. Whereas the Bible time and time again says that this world is brief and passing, and the world to come is forever and permanent. If you're not yet a Christian here tonight, you need to understand that you'll never make sense of Christianity if you think this world is all there is. I think Christianity will make this world a lot better for you, but that is not where our primary hope and blessing is. I mean, look back at chapter 4 and verse 16. We, we saw this last week, 2 Corinthians 4, 16. Paul writes this, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And how could Paul be so certain of that glorious unseen future? Well, he told us in chapter 4 and verse 14. Because we know 
that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul was looking forward to the day he would be raised to be with Christ forever. Now, to remind you, Paul is writing here probably his third letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians. It was a church, if you remember, he had a a difficult relationship with. Uh, They didn't like the sort of weak nature of Paul's ministry. They wanted strong, the impressive, the sorted, uh, the thing that looked good in this world. And now some people in Corinth, some people called the super apostles, the sort of marvel heroes of the Christian world according to themselves, they were offering them that life, a gospel that said you can have it all now. So Paul writes to the Corinthians to tell them, no, that the genuine gospel is this gospel of suffering now and glory in the future. It looks weak, but it is powerful. And he says, look, If you're a real Christian, what you are is a weak and broken person who is living in the light of the resurrection. Living in the light of resurrection reality. And what he does in our passage this evening is he continues to spell out what that means. He tells us what is this unseen future we're to fix our eyes on. So as you wonder about how you're feeling about getting older, well, the first thing you need to know is that we live now as a people groaning for the future groaning for the future. That's the repeated word in the first few verses of our passage. Have a look at verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Or verse 4, for a while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened. I don't know know about you, but that's that's my day-to-day experience. I groan a lot. I groan because of the disappointment of failing again with my own sinfulness, my own failure before God. I groan in distress because of the suffering of the people around me who who I love. Groaning for for that desire that the struggle will just simply end. Groaning. But the groaning Paul is talking about here is not so that resigned, hopeless. It's more about the, the, the longing, the painful longing of a woman in labor. Groaning, knowing there is a wonderful end in sight. That is, there's a new life that will soon be within her grasp. That's the sort of groaning. Look at verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. For, says Paul, this is the reason we can fix our eyes on that certain future. This is why we groan with hope. Because there's something better to come. Now, um, I'd, I'd like to enjoy camping more. I really would. But there's, there's something flimsy and temporary about a tent, isn't there? I mean, especially if you're going camping in the Lake District or North Wales and the, the wind and the rain. And that's Paul's picture of a tent here. It's, it's the fragile body that, that he, that we, inhabit. And he knows that, that actually that's not his permanent home. As he looks at death, as he looks at the end of his his physical matter, the the final decomposition of the cells that go to make up him, and looking out this evening, some people are struggling with more decomposition than others. As he looks at that, he's not worried, because he knows he's got something better. He's got a, a permanent palace to inhabit, a place that is a gift of God. A body that's not the result of genetic engineering or cryogenic freezing or medical preserving. A body that is given him because of the grace of God through the resurrection of Jesus. A perfect, 
physical resurrection body that he's going to have in the future without pain. None of the aches of old age. None of the diseases that, that snatch young life cruelly away. None of the darkness of depression. Not, not even a hint of suffering and sadness. No wonder Paul says in verse 2, Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. If, if you know your, um, your Old Testaments, you'll know that the God's people spent quite a long time camping. In fact, they, they spent 40 years on their journey from slavery in Egypt to, to the land that God had pr- promised them. In the, in the book of Exodus and Numbers, that journey is extended because of their disobedience. But, but finally, they make it to, to that glorious land. And listen how the Lord describes it in Deuteronomy 4. The verse is here, Deuteronomy chapter 6. A land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then you, when you eat and are satisfied. Well, the, the future we look forward to is far better than that picture in the Old Testament of that land. You know what it's like when you get home from a camping trip? You, you have a toilet and it's all yours. You think, oh, it's okay, I left that in there. That's fine, I know where that came from. And it, it's beside your bedroom. Isn't that a novel concept? It's right there. The toilet is beside the bedroom. It's amazing. And your bed, it's really springy and comfy. You don't have to pump it up halfway through the night. And you can plug in the kettle, and it boils in seconds. And the phone charges, and you think, why on earth did I ever go camping? What God has promised for all people is on the day Jesus returns to judge the world, we will experience something that is wonderful in its perfection, a permanent physical resurrection body, a building he describes it as here, a body like Jesus had after his resurrection, physical but different, able to eat but never dissatisfied, able to be touched but never longing for affection, able to talk, but never lonely, able to walk, but never having nowhere to go. That's the future he's talking about. Now, now you might not realize that, that the final home of, of Christians is not some sort of just spiritual existence, sort of floating around in some, some blob of consciousness, or sitting on a cloud plucking a harp, clothed in an ethereal negligee. No, in the Bible, the final home for Christians is this world made perfect. The Bible calls it the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation. It's everything good about our lives with everything bad gone. And that's where Paul is looking forward to. That is his permanent dwelling where he will be safe in his home. Because we don't like feeling exposed, do we? Do you see what Paul says in verse 3? Because when we are clothed, we'll not be found naked. Nakedness is one of those terrible things, isn't it? People have the dream when they suddenly find themselves in a nightmare, in a cold sweat, standing naked on a stage before everyone they ever knew. We don't like being exposed. And the nakedness that Paul's talking about here could be a reference to to actually not having a physical body, to, to maybe life between death and the day we'll get that glorious resurrection body, just being the spiritual life that we have with Jesus while we wait to be raised from the dead. And Paul might be saying here, look, 
I don't particularly want to go through the experience of death, the nakedness of death, the, the exposure, the vulnerability of death. I'd much rather actually be alive when the Lord Jesus returns and just go to this perfect future. That's a fair thing to think, isn't it? I mean, most of the old saints I've talked to before they've died have known they're going home. They've wanted to go home. I, I can remember Hilda Bamber in Preston in her 90s wanted to go home. Um, she, she was certain that was going to be better, but, but she didn't want to go through the experience of death. I guess none of us do, do we? I mean, you have to be pretty morbid to think, oh, I'd like to find out what it feels like to die. And Paul's fear of death, well... That makes sense, doesn't it? Because if we're created to enjoy a physical life forever, if that's what we're going to have, then it does feel slightly odd to think about not having a body. We don't like the idea of life without one. It's not that Christians want to die. We're not morbid. Look how Paul puts it in in verse 4. He says this, For while we're in this tent, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. We feel that struggle of day-to-day life in this decaying frame. We feel our selfish hearts that disappoint us as we long to love other people like Christ. That's my experience, isn't it? There's rarely a day that I don't get to the end of it and wish that I wasn't a very different human being. We, we, we're pained by that struggle. We want it, it all to end so that, so that one day with the, with the people God made us to be, we want to live without problems. And we rightly groan for what we were made for. A life without all the effects of sin, physically and emotionally and spiritually. A life without that greatest enemy, the one enemy we can never defeat, death itself. Did you see what Paul calls that life at the end of verse 4? He simply calls it life. Maybe swallowed up by life. Some people say, this isn't much of a life. And they're right. This isn't much of a life. But one day we will have true life. The life God created us to enjoy. Verse 5, now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God who's given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what's to come. That's what God's made us for. Not not to enjoy this, but to enjoy that. And it's a done deal. Did you see that? Jesus' death at the cross has purchased this. His resurrection has proven it. And now, Paul says, it's guaranteed by his Holy Spirit. He's poured the Spirit into our hearts. So he gives us spiritual life now. He reassures us that we know that we're loved by God. He convicts us that this world is not all there is and that the world to come is what we're longing for and hoping for. And it's by his power that we keep following Jesus day by day until we get to see him face to face. We can't lose our future in the Lord Jesus Christ because we did nothing to earn it. And God is going to take us there. That's the promise. It's a done deal. Now, sooner or later, you and I are going to face the reality of death. If not our own death, the death of of someone we love. And death is brutal. If If it is final, as so many people claim today, then death will take everything. It will take our most tender memories. It will take our greatest actions and achievements. 
every exam we've passed, all the love in our hearts, they'll not just be meaningless, they'll cease to exist with us. Um, I was reading a, a book not too long ago by um, a surgeon called Henry Marsh. You might have seen him on the telly. He was consultant neurosurgeon at St. George's uh, just up the road here in Tooting. And he's an atheist. Um, and he writes this about his understanding of death in the face of his, his mother's death. I felt no need to pay her body my final respects. As far as I was concerned, her body had become a meaningless shell. I say body, I could just as well talk of her brain. As I had sat by her bedside, I'd often thought of that, of how the millions upon millions of nerve cells and their near-infinite connections that formed her brain, her very self, were struggling and fading. I remember on that last morning, just before I went to work, her face sunken and wasted, unable to move, unable to talk, unable to open her eyes. Yet when I asked her if she wanted any water to drink, she shook her head. Within this dying, ruined body, invaded by cancer cells, she was still there, even though she was now refusing even water and clearly anxious not to prolong her dying any longer. But but listen to what he can't help himself saying, having watched his mother die. And now all those brain cells are dead, and my mother, who in a sense was the complex electrochemical interaction of all these millions of neurons, is no more. In neuroscience, it is called the binding problem, the extraordinary fact which nobody can even begin to explain that mere brute matter can give rise to consciousness and sensation. Here he goes. I had such a strong sensation as she lay dying that some deeper, real person was still there behind the death mask. You see, there is no hope if we're just a bunch of cells. But there is the real person that the Bible calls it our souls, the true us, that that goes on through death. And and Paul says, will never cease, will live forever. Henry Marsh groans, but he groans without hope. He groans without the certain future of Jesus and his promises. But we groan knowing the best is yet to come. And I think our, our problem sometimes is we expect life to be groan-free. Grown We've sort of believed the culture around us. See, though I believe in universal sin and suffering, though the Bible teaches me that, though my experience teaches me that, it's true, I still, I think, have this unspoken expectation that by my efforts or by finally finding the the right side of bed to get out on on every single day, I should enjoy a life now where I work perfectly physically. I function, where I have the body I want, where all my relationships are constantly happy and harmonious, where I'm deeply content and secure within my own heart. At best, I expect a life without any groaning. At worst, I think I am owed that life. Now, 2 Corinthians 5 tells me that's right to expect a perfect life. That's right to long for that. Because that's what you and I were made for. But it also tells me that's not what I've got now. I'm going to be groaning for it. I won't know it in this life. But wonderfully, God has given it to me through Christ forever in the future. 
See, groaning's not just normal. Groaning is right. And we need to be honest with our culture about the reality of the life we live. And groaning for our certain future is actually the way we have the most contentment in the present. Because you see, if the first thing is that we groan for the future, that is the way, secondly, we are confident in the present. We're confident in the present. Do you see how verse 6 starts? Have a look down at verse 6 with me. Therefore, in other words, in the light of what I just said, we are always confident and know that as long as we're home in the body, we're away from the Lord. He's certain about that. We see at the beginning of verse 8, we are confident, says Paul. Uh, The word confident here has the sense of a a good courage. This isn't the smug certainty of someone who who knows they're better than other people. No, this is a God-given security that allows him to face the real fears of life. It's the courage that he needs to make it through every day through the reality of pain and sorrow and suffering while he waits to go and be with the Lord Jesus. And so he can say, verse 6 again, Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight. We won't see our future, do we? It's not as though we sort of can go to a heavenly holiday brochure or or a new creation website where we, we can sort of look at pictures of the hotel and the pool and the activities we're going to be enjoying when we get there. We can't, we know, we know we have something better to come, but, but they're based on the promises of God. We can be certain that we're not going to arrive and, and find that it's, it's a building site because he hasn't quite put, finish, putting the finishing touches to our accommodation. Why? Because we, we know Jesus rose from the dead, and so our future is guaranteed. That's the certainty, and we trust it through faith. That's where our lives are heading. But what Paul says is because we know that, it transforms our ability to cope with the present. We don't have to be naive optimists. You know the optimist? They ignore the struggles of this life. They assume that it's all going to get better. There's so many people in the world live like that. They're just pretending it's all going to get better. The number of people I've talked to who aren't Christians, who've been visiting their loved ones in a hospice, in a hospice and have said, oh, oh, they look so much better this week. I don't think they're picking up. They're in a hospice. We don't have to be naive optimists like that. No, we're all going to die. Your family, your friends, your children, your grandchildren, they're all going to die. Many of them after difficult and probably painful lives. But we don't have to be miserable pessimists either. You know, constantly complaining about the world we live in, moping around in self-pity because, you know, nothing is quite the way we want it, getting grumpy with people and getting grumpy with God, though we won't admit it, because no one gives us just what we want. No, we can be hoptimists. Hoptimists. We're confident that we have a glorious future with our beautiful Savior ahead of us. And so we have the strength today to face whatever the world throws at us. Not looking forward to death, but knowing the best is yet to come. And it's that confidence in the future that makes this life worth living. Have you been struck? There's a paradox that struck me recently. It's this, that more and more people 
are claiming not to believe in there being a God or a heaven. So, so when I went to Preston, about 90% of the funerals were taken by ministers of religion. When I left Preston, only about 50% of the funerals were taken by ministers of religion. The majority were taken by humanist celebrants of life. And there is nothing more miserable than a celebration of life. Let me tell you why. When someone dies, your grief is the size of the hole that they have made in your life, the loss you've experienced. And what happens at the celebration of life? You look backwards and you make that hole as big as possible and give yourself no hope for the future. All you do is remember why you're so miserable, because they were so lovely. And yet, despite this denial about the future, what we're finding is people increasingly want to take their own lives when they're suffering from pain. Isn't that a paradox, you'd think? Well, not not according to 2 Corinthians 5. You see, the reason that people pay thousands of pounds to go and end their life with Dignitas in Switzerland, I mean, I admit Switzerland's a nice place to go. I mean, especially if Dignitas was in Scunthorpe, there'd be fewer people going. But the reason that they spend thousands of pounds to do that is because they have no hope for the future. I was reading a dreadful article just a couple of weeks ago in the the Saturday Times magazine. It was uh, about two men, Mark and Marcel. I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce their Dutch surnames. And Marcel's written a book about his brother, Mark, who took his life with euthanasia, aged 42. Uh, He was an alcoholic and a depressive. There's a passage in the book where Marcel describes his mother catching her face in the mirror shortly after Mark's funeral and observing that the light has gone out. In her eyes, I asked Marcel whether that light has come back on in the two years that have passed since Mark's death. No, he says flatly, and it won't. None of us is waiting for a Hollywood ending to any of this. And there was another woman, a woman called Aurel Broers, a range of uh, psychiatric disorders, including borderline personality disorder. There was a documentary about her on the, on the Dutch TV, The Last Days of Oriel Brewers. And in it, she was shown chatting excitedly to the camera about her imminent release from the pain of existence. Brewers clutched a pink-stuffed dinosaur and a bottle of poison that she'd been descri- prescribed to end her life. She was 29 years old. You see, if you have no future hope, There's no point to suffering any pain now. See, we need a certain hope. Without it, we don't have the good courage to cope with the reality of life. You just groan in pain, not in expectation, in a pain that will never end, not not in the pain of a pregnant woman knowing something better is to come. But but we know that groaning is not endless. And we know we're looking forward to an untold joy. And therefore, we can keep going today in the pain that is a reality of living in this world. That's the extraordinary paradox. When you know something's better to come, you can cope with living in this life for longer. And we need to pray in the light of that, don't we? So so often we pray as though we we don't believe we have an eternal home to come. I can tell you now, the best way to get prayed for in a church is to get sick. And we pray for the sick, as though, as though this life is all there is. And we should pray for the sick. I'm not saying that's wrong. But we should pray for salvation, probably more than we pray for the sick. Because in the end, the sick person, even if they get better, they will die. And only in Christ will we live forever. 
Only God will save them. And Paul says we need to order our lives around our certain future. Do you see that down in verse 9? So we make it our goal to please him whether we're at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. See, Paul has in mind that that day when he'll receive his resurrection body. On that day, the Bible makes it clear that everyone who's ever lived will give an account of their life before Jesus is the judge. The day of perfect justice. Everyone judged according to what they've done. And that's the day that gives, therefore, significance to everything we do. The way we spend our time when we're at home. The way we think about our our friends, our family, the way we speak to our husband or our wife, the, the way we use the internet in the dark solitude of our bedroom, the way we spend each penny of our money, the way we use each second of our time, they're all significant because there is a day in the future when everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I hope if you're a Christian, you're not afraid of the verdict. We know that because Jesus has taken upon himself all of our sins, That though we are guilty as we stand before him, we are declared innocent by the Lord Jesus because he has made us righteous. Our judge is also our savior. But but I hope that that you also realize that because that reality is the future, like, like Paul, our goal is to please Jesus, whatever we're doing, wherever we are. So when you go for next week's hospital appointment, you go certain that your future will be pain-free. So what matters most while you're in the waiting room is actually the way that you treat the other people there, more than what the doctor says to you when you get to see him in the end. And when you're sorting out the, the diary for next week, Actually, it matters more that your children see through your life that this world and all its achievements are passing away. That that you're more interested how they fare before Jesus than how they do in their exams or in their job or in anything else in life. And when your colleague finds out that um, they've got cancer, you start to pray for them to tell them about the hope that you have because you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the Lord might have mercy upon them to preserve their life and so that they can come to trust in him and share that hope with you. And when you find yourself later, tonight, tomorrow, the next day, groaning for something better, longing that this would just get easier, longing to be with Jesus, Well, no, that is entirely normal. And one day, better with him is all you'll have forever.